Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. The economic benefits of immigration are substantial, and they're widely accepted by economists. When people move from low-income to high-income countries, they immediately become more productive, making themselves and their neighbors better off. But many immigration restrictions are skeptical of this. They argue that immigrants can bring their ideas and cultural norms that kept their home countries poor, and a large enough influx of immigrants would therefore undermine America's institutions, making everyone worse off in the long run. Today, I'll be speaking with Alex Narasta to examine this argument and to discuss the future of immigration policy under the Biden administration. Alex is the Director of Immigration Studies at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. He's also the co-author, along with Benjamin Powell, of Wretched Refuse, The Political Economy of Immigration and Institutions, released in December of last year. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot, Jim. How is U.S. immigration different today than at the start of Donald Trump's term four years ago? So it's different in some remarkable ways. Donald Trump instituted many policies, many regulations through executive action that substantially reduced legal immigration to the United States. We saw a more than 20% decline in student visas. We saw a decline in applications for all manner of work visas, including high school work visas. And most dramatically, beginning in March and continuing to April of 2020 in response to the COVID recession, he virtually ended all legal immigration to the United States. The number of green cards issued in the last half of the fiscal year 2020 was down 91% from what it was in the last half of the fiscal year 2016. And the number of non-immigrant visas, including tourists, work visas, et cetera, had declined by 93% due, uh, uh, compared to the same time period due to his executive actions. So we're in a vastly different immigration world than we were before Donald Trump was elected. If these policies were maintained for another four years or for a decade, how would that change sort of the share of, of, uh, of people in this country who were born somewhere else? With these, you know, I mean, I'm not asking for a, a decimal point, but just like a rough, a rough and ready back of the envelope idea. So right now it's about 13.6% foreign born. Uh, it's held steady for the last year. I would expect that to start to decline uh, by a few percentage points. Uh, not catastrophically, but if these uh, rules were continued for a decade, I mean, it would go down several percentage points. Now, that that share of the population, which is foreign born, could you just give me a, a little bit of historical context for that? Is that a lot historically, a little? It's a little bit uh, below the maximum. So from about 1860 to around 1920, 1925, the foreign born share was between about 13.5 and 14.5%. Beginning in the sort of early to mid 1920s, Congress passed a series of laws to restrict immigration from Europe for the first time, to put huge numer- uh, to put very low numerical quotas on the number of people who would come to this country. And we saw the foreign born share decline from about 14% or so in 1920 to a low of 4.5% by the mid 1960s when Congress started to uh, pass the Immigration Act in 1965, 
that liberalized immigration again. And since then, we've seen the foreign-born share climb slowly and steadily uh, up to about what it is today, which is 13.6%. And uh, the quiz the quiz continues, Alex. <laughs> How would you compare that? How's that number compared to other rich countries? It's pretty low. So compared to other OECD countries, um, the American foreign-born share of the population is in the bottom third of the distribution. Uh, European countries, uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, all have or mostly have foreign-born shares of the population above ours. So for instance, Canada's foreign-born share of the population is uh, almost 21%. In Australia, it's about 28%. In New Zealand, it's uh, over 30%. In Switzerland, it's over 30%. Uh, you know, in Germany, France, it's slightly above what it is in the U.S. It's about 15, 16 percent in those countries. Uh, in some countries that are OECD, there's a much lower share. Um, you know, Japan uh, is about one and a half percent of the population that's foreign born. South Korea is about one percent. Denmark's about four or five percent. So there's really like a wide distribution. But the United States is in the bottom third of this and other countries seem to be moving uh, especially the former British colonies anyway, seem to be moving in a more open direction rather than the United States. Now, I, I would imagine you do a lot of debates. You're probably, you're probably a popular keynote speaker. When you talk to people who are not studying this, just regular people, do you think they have a good sense of these numbers, both in absolute terms and as, as well as how they compare to other nations? Not at all. I, think generally most people are pretty enumerate (laughs) across the board. If we were talking about any numbers at all, I don't really think they understand either the scale or the history or or what this means. Um, Asking people to visualize large numbers or percentages of any kind is, is inherently difficult. It's something that took me years in an education to try to understand. So no, I don't think anybody really understands this or understands either the relative positions. I think people still believe that the United States is the most open country in the world when it comes to immigration. They believe that everywhere else has closed borders. And that myth has uh, persisted and colored our entire political debate over this issue negatively. Uh, trust me, we, we'll get to the actual arguments in your book. But uh, I want to ask you a, a kind of question I usually say for the end, which is sort of a, a what if question. You mentioned that the uh, share of the population born somewhere else reached a low in the 60s. It was I think it was 4%, you said? About 4.5%, yeah. Have you thought about what America today would be like had that number stayed at 4%? Had we not... Uh, opened up immigration, opened up perhaps to countries which we did not get a lot of immigrants from before. But had we sort of stuck our immigration system in amber in the mid-1960s, what does America in 2021 look like? So about a quarter of Americans today are immigrants or the children of immigrants. So if that number had remained low, um, the majority of those people would not be here today. So you're talking about, you know, there's about 330 million Americans. Uh, Let's round it down a little bit. I think there'd be somewhere around 75 million fewer people um, living in this country. We would have lost out on an enormous number of immigrants, especially from East Asia, 
but also from Latin America and Africa, many of whom are supremely highly skilled. They are more likely to found large firms, especially in the tech sector in places like Silicon Valley. Uh, we would have lost out on an enormous amount of patents. Like patents are an imperfect measure of innovation, of course, um, as I learned from partly from listening to your show, uh, but we would have lost out on many of the patents and innovations and new firms that, um, make the United States the wealthy, productive people that uh, country that it is today, as well as tens of millions of our fellow citizens. So we'd be a smaller country, a poorer country, and I think a less important country in the world stage than we are today if we had kept this closed borders policy in place. Now, some people who want less immigration are unpersuaded by any of the things that you, uh, that you just said. And one of the arguments they make is, listen, we can discuss, we can discuss how they affect wages. We can discuss entrepreneurship. But uh, if you bring in a lot of immigrants from places uh, that are not like America, they will bring in that places that are not as successful as America. They are going to bring in all those beliefs and behaviors and perspectives and sort of undermine what works about America. That I think is the most succinct uh, <laughs> summation of the argument that you know our book is about. And it's the topic that has kept me awake at nights for years, which is immigrants do come from countries with worse institutions. Maybe they'll undermine ours that are here that make us wealthy. This is the one area where I thought I was most likely to be wrong on because all these other arguments, like you said, about economics or crime um, or, or cultural change don't really work. Uh, the evidence is bad, but this is the one that kept us up late at night working. So we decided to finally write a book about it to investigate these claims. Are immigrants from poor countries with bad institutions, do they affect American institutions? Do they make them worse? Um, do they make them worse in other developed countries? Do they make them worse in poor countries when they move to other poor countries? And the resounding... Well, let's be clear. What do you mean by institutions? Let's make sure that's, a, that's kind of a fancy, uh, a fancy term. What, so institutions, what are we talking about? So we're talking about the rules of economic exchange, both the formal rules, which are written down in statutes or by common law, but also the informal rules, like say starting a business, having a deal on a handshake. So the rules that we have today are likely, you know, these economic institutions are the reason why we're a wealthy and productive country. So a lot of evidence for that. So having prior property rules gives an incentive for entrepreneurs to create new businesses because they keep the majority of the profits. They can innovate because they can keep uh, they can internalize a lot of the benefits. They can sell their innovations and make a profit. They don't have to worry about the government or warlords or gangs or other types of instability uh, diminishing their private property rights. And a lot, uh, and this is a relatively recent advance in human history. You go back to, you know, prior to the mid 1600s, basically, most of the world has the same standard of living going back to five, 6,000 BC. It's not that much higher. But beginning in the 1600s and 1700s, countries primarily in Western, I mean, entirely in Western Europe, started to diverge from the rest of the world. They started to create and formalize these institutions. And it's the reason why the West got uh, developed first. And now countries around the world that have uh, copied these institutions are now doing well, are developing uh, because they've copied and expanded and in a lot of ways improved upon these institutions. So these are really like the key building blocks to our prosperity. So if immigrants were to come in from countries 
where they don't have these institutions, where they have bad institutions that uh, reduce the productivity of the population, they could undermine ours and end up killing the goose that lays the golden egg. And, it's, it's, and so they, they might come from countries where there's a lot more sort of a cronyism and that's just accepted, more corruption, a lot more skepticism probably uh, uh, about about the effectiveness of markets, about whether pro- private property is something valuable across a whole sort of range of beliefs. They, they might be bringing sort of a different set uh, of beliefs about you know, what makes for a, a healthy, prosperous society. They could. They could bring in those beliefs and they could affect our beliefs in them, either through voting and by undermining these rules at their source by changing American culture to the extent that Americans start to believe in these things, believe in these bad myths, believe in things like socialism and cronyism and uh, dirigist uh, economic policies. Um, they, and thus, you know, kill the goose that lays the golden egg. They could change American culture to the extent where we don't uh, trust each other or trust business anymore or trust uh, society in general, to be fair. And all of these things would basically mimic the dysfunctional economic and political and other institutions right. in much of the developing world. People, people in different places, uh, they have a, you know, it seems sort of, you know, obviously true, but there's a thing called the World Values Survey that looks at, you know, they ask questions of different countries, what people believe about a whole source of issues, not just economics. And people believe different things about the way the world works and the way the world should work in different places. All right. Um, and so the concern is that people will come from the places that aren't successful and they'll bring those beliefs to America and they will erode our beliefs in favor of their beliefs. So what did you find? So we took a look at this in detail. And we found um, in many cases, no evidence of this occurring, no negative effect of immigrants on institutions in the developed world. And in some cases, we found uh, a positive effect, an increase, whereby immigrants from these places actually result in improvements in the institutions in the countries where they settle. Is that is this just the United States or um, sort or other uh, rich countries too that they get a lot of immigrants? So we did learn several different studies in the book. One of them we did a cross-country study. Uh, where we took a look at dozens and dozens of different countries around the world and looked at immigrant flows. And we used as our measure of institutions something called the Economic Freedom of the World Index, which is put together by uh, Cato and the Fraser Institute. So it measures economic freedom on various factors like taxes, burden of government, regulations, et cetera. And so we wanted to see how immigrant flows over time affected the changes, uh, was related to changes and the economic freedom in countries where they settle. And we found you know, a slight positive improvement um, into these countries for more immigration. So the more immigration there was in the past, the more improvement there were in economic freedom scores um, you know, in, in the subsequent decades after that had arrived. And that was sort of a surprise finding. And that prompted us to take a look at some other countries, you know, to use some quasi-natural experiments in the language of economics. Right? Oh, I love those. Oh, they're the best. I mean, like, you know, these cross-country studies are fine, right? But there's all these problems with them, right? Like maybe there's endogeneity. Maybe these countries are going to be great anyway. So immigrants are moving toward them for that reason. So I love quasi-natural experiments. They get me up in the morning. And so we use synthetic control methods and difference and differences, which are two quasi-experimental methods to look at, you know, these really interesting case studies of when there are massive movements of immigration all of a sudden 
not caused by anything that the country of destination did. So we take a look at Israel uh, when the Soviet Union fell. And Israel has a policy, you know, law of return, says Jews can come to Israel and basically get citizenship almost immediately uh, upon arrival. So fell, fall the Soviet Union, um, the rest of the world had basically closed borders to the Soviet Union. Very few were allowed to go in except for Israel. So all these Jews from the Soviet Union went to Israel, increased Israel's population by about 5%, uh, by about 20% in five years. So we're talking about, you know, a massive increase in the population in a short time. And what we found is looking at the impact on Israel's economic freedom score, you know, Israel goes from looking like a typical Europe, Middle Eastern country at this time with a fairly low economic freedom score to rising to the level of an OECD country within a very short period of time. And then we dug down into the history of like what was going on. And it turns out a lot of Israelis reacted to this large immigration by becoming more supportive of, of generally more free market economic policies. And the immigrants themselves are pretty supportive of these policies. So we you know, can con pretty conclusively say that the immigration is what caused Israel to liberalize its economy substantially in the early 1990s. Is it looking at the United States, is it the case that when immigrants come here, I guess, with their with their views, they become more like they just become more like us rather than sort of sticking to their views and and turning us into them? In a lot of ways, they become more like us. In other ways, they remain a little distinct. Mm -hmm. uh, but those distinctions are generally better. So they, they move toward us in lots of ways, like language, um, in terms of uh, patriotism. Immigrants are a little bit more likely to be patriotic when they arrive than, than Americans. Um, but in some ways, such as trust in specific institutions, uh, immigrants maintain higher levels of trust in those institutions than native-born Americans do. So for instance, um, Immigrants are more likely in the general social survey responses to say that they trust Congress, <laughs> which is kind of a joke, but you know, they, they like our institutions more. They trust Congress, they tr trust the president, they trust the court system, which is the enforcer of many of these economic institutions. All, all, all of those might just work a lot better than what they're used to. So even we think, uh, you know, Congress, they don't do anything, the courts are the courts are unfair compared to where these people come from. They look all like they look like you know, finely tuned machines. <laughs> That's right. I mean, in a way we're spoiled. I mean, you know, right. I grew up in the United States, you did, you know, we're, we're both Americans. Um, and so, you know, we, we notice all the flaws. People who come from abroad notice all the differences uh, and all the benefits and how these institutions are better. Um, and, and also most importantly, immigrants are much more trusting of big business <laughs> and business in general in the United States than native born Americans are. So they come in and they have these better opinions. So ironically, you know, people are worried about immigrants coming in and degrading our institutions, degrading trust in our institutions. Immigrants are probably holding up a lot of the social trust in our institutions and, and in business in this country. It's the exact opposite of what the critics claim. Do you think your findings would change if there were just one, a lot more immigrants to the United States and if you know, and if they sort of, you know, settled in certain areas, is it just that, you know, you, you mentioned that, uh, that there are other countries that have a much greater uh, uh, share of their population who are immigrants. If we approach some of those numbers, might the impact uh, be different and they would, and more sort of the, sort of their, the bad beliefs and sort of bad, you know, unhelpful uh, uh, views of institutions 
that 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 would have more of an effect. There just aren't enough immigrants to have that big effect on it. We're a big country. It's it's always theoretically possible, but the way that you know when we look at countries like Australia and Canada, New Zealand, Switzerland that have a lot more immigrants, we don't see any institutional degradation going on. And they have you know Australia and um, New Zealand and Switzerland have you know double or more than double the proportion of their population is foreign born. So that's pretty. A good sign that we could have a lot more and not suffer from these consequences. Also, there's a self-selection issue going on here. A lot of the people who are willing to move to the United States from their countries of birth are just more open to these ideas, are more classically liberal than the people around them. They're more interested in assimilating to other cultures, and they're more likely to see the problems with the country that they're from. I mean, the, the, the big difference, right? And we've all traveled, I think a lot, at least before the pandemic we did to other places. And we just realized that things work better here. And a lot of these cultural beliefs, these, these things that people have that they grew up with, um, they change based on experiences. Um, you know, Doug North, Nobel Prize winning economist said that culture is a partial solution to the frequently encountered problems of the past. And when that culture fails to solve the problems of the present, it changes. Uh, it's not stuck in mud. It's not encoded in our DNA. And what we see is that when people realize that other things work well and they're exposed to new institutions and new environments, they adapt. So there might be some theoretical limit, right, where immigrants don't assimilate, where they bring these things with them. Uh, but it would have to be a lot. And we've never really observed that um, in, in any kind of situation where it's free migration, you know, in a labor market where it's not conquest. But th this argument, in a way... I think even more than sort of the economic argument, I think kind of gets at uh, why people who are very immigration skeptical. You saw it sort of this idea sort of within some of the comments that President Trump made referring to certain un countries that he viewed as un undesirable, that that these immigrants, they're not like the good immigrants of the past from uh uh, from Europe, you know, which, you know, seem more like the United States They're from they're from countries which have not worked well. And they're just and they're just going to dilute and inf and really, I, I think, infect because I, I think there's some of that in there and just and just distort America forever. I mean, that's 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 what I think is so really pernicious about this idea is that it really, I think, gets the heart uh, of why people, I think a lot of people are skeptical of immigration and why just showing them a few wage studies isn't going to change their mind. It, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I think we've done way too many wage studies as it is in economics, and it's time to move on to these other arguments to, to address it. Um, and I think you're, you're, you're talking about it being a disease is the exact right way that I think a lot of these uh, anti-immigration people think about it. I mean, it's no coincidence in our book, the model that we use to study the spread of ideas that could potentially be brought in by immigrants is a SIR model, which is used by epidemiologists to study the spread of diseases. We adapted it by research from um, uh, Michael Clemens and Lant Pritchett, um, and we used it sort of to study how these um, ideas and opinions about bad institutions spread in, in the United States. And I think the way it's operationalized in American politics is a lot of folks, you know, particularly right now uh, on the right, are worried that immigrants are going to undermine the Republican Party, are going to result in a leftward drift in American politics. And I, the evidence for that is pretty, pretty weak to non-existent.
all that said, do we need to do anything or do, do we need to be concerned about assimilation? Does that, does that process just sort of work on its own or there, do there need to be more active efforts to sort of Americanize immigrants? I'm pretty opposed to more active efforts because the people who are going to do that are going to be government officials and government bureaucrats. And what they decide American being American is, is going to be what these uh, government agents decide. So if you, if you think that, you know, public school bureaucrats and officials who decide what our kids should learn if they go to public schools are going to choose a really good way uh, or a good definition of what it means to be American, then I think you should say, okay, we need this type of government program. But if you're sort of skeptical of that, and if you're skeptical of, uh, a set in stone definition of what it means to be American, or you think it's a more classical liberal definition of what it means, um, then I would be pretty opposed to that. I mean, assimilation happens because it's in the best interest of the immigrants and in the interest of the rest of American society for them to assimilate. I mean, America is known as like a monolingual society, for instance, just to take language as an example. I mean, when I lived in Europe uh, for grad school, the joke was, um, you know, what do you call somebody who speaks two languages? and it's bilingual. Uh, what do you call somebody who speaks one language and it's American? Right, right. Um, and, and that's just not gonna change. So the, the benefits of learning English are obvious and tremendous off the bat. Ethan Lewis at Dartmouth found that, um, you know, a high school dropout who learns English can expect his wages to rise by 20% merely by doing so. So the notion that we need to create sort of new incentives or new institutions or somehow subsidize or fund new ways for immigrants uh, to assimilate, I think misses the idea that no, they, they want to assimilate, they do, um, it happens. And given the dominance of American culture and media around the world, a lot of them sort of halfway pre-assimilate <laughs> before even coming here. And that's something that is very different and positive, I think from immigration over a hundred years ago where there really wasn't that pre-assimilation trend. Going forward, what are we going to do about immigration? Now we have a new president wants to do something different. Are we just going to have sort of a, a swinging back and forth between, uh, you know, less restrictionist and more restrictionist policies? Uh, I'm not sure what the polls are saying right now, but it seemed like everything that President Trump wanted to do, Democrats would be against. So Trump is for protectionism. Democrats, ah, we're free traders. Trump is for immigration restriction. Ah, we love immigrants. Is it, so are Democrats going to be the party of lots of lots of immigrants sort of forever what is the next sort of what do we do over the next decade well that really is the sixty-four thousand dollar question the thing that i'm worried about is um the institutions of the u.s government and that congress is increasingly irrelevant and the president basically sets all these policies so thanks to a supreme court decision of trump v hawaii which legalized or, or basically settled the legal dispute over Trump's so-called Muslim ban against some um, uh, immigrants based on national security justification that he imposed. Uh, they said that that was fine. And that basically opened the door for the president to ban any immigrants from any country for any reason, which is exactly what he did on his way out of office. And so far, the president also has a lot of power to increase legal immigration. And I think that President Biden is gonna test those legal limits going forward. So it could be that each time we have a new president from a different party in office, we're gonna see immigration policy swing wildly uh, like a pendulum from side to side, things that we would never see if Congress were in power and making these rules. But now that almost all of this power is 
um, in the hands of the president, then we could see pretty large and pretty massive shifts um, in the course of 48 years. And that's, that's terrifying to me. And that, we, and that means that it's basically uh, do or die every 48 years. And that is not a sustainable institutional arrangement. My guest today has been Alex Norasta. Alex, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. 